Hey everyone, welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Right Words Podcast. I am Hayley Walsh, your host, author of Lighthearted Fiction, and as always, I'm coming to you from Darug Country in far western Sydney at the base of the beautiful Blue Mountains. And my guest today is joining us from Jaja Warung Country in Victoria. I am thrilled to be bringing you an interview with Australian author Mary Garden. Her book titled Sundowner of the Skies, the story of Oscar Garden, the forgotten aviator, is not only a biography detailing her late father's achievements as an early pioneering aviator, it is also a raw and honest memoir. Mary talks about her childhood growing up. Oscar Garden, the pilot, was a very different man to Oscar Garden, the husband and father. We talked about her writing, her first book detailing a traumatic trip to India in the 1970s, sibling abuse, childhood trauma, all the way to why she felt she needed to tell not only her own story, but her father's story too, despite the past. Now, unfortunately, we did have a little bit of trouble with Mary's audio. There are a few little glitches along the way, but I don't think it takes any away, uh, anything away from her interview. So without further ado, let's go to my chat with Mary. Hello everyone, I am joined today by author Mary Garden. Mary is the author of Sundowner of the Skies, the story of Oscar Garden, the Forgotten Aviator. Mary, welcome to the Right Words podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to finally be talking to you. We've rescheduled this a few times due to one (laughs) um, issue or another, so it's so exciting to finally sit down and chat with you. Okay. (laughs) So, Mary, could you start by telling our listeners a bit about yourself in general? Who is Mary Gardner? Sorry, Garden, sorry. Um, I'm, t- well, I'm calling you the wrong I'm name. Not, I do apologise. It's all right. I am not a full-time author. <laughs> I need okay. to make that clear. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not every day and write. I just write when I feel like I have to, you know, write something. And both my books were like stories that were there, true stories that just had to be written for me to get on with my life. And I've also done um, freelance writing as well, so freelance journalism since the year 2001. And I've done done lots of things in my life. I trained to be a school teacher and um, went to India for six or seven years. I'm now, uh, you know, became a mum and now I'm a grandmum and I'm an avid cyclist. And, yeah, yep, I juggle many balls. Yeah, so you're a very busy lady. So and tell I'm me a little bit more about family about, business as well. Sorry, that's okay. okay. So yeah. tell me a little bit more about your freelance um, writing work. So is it oh, mainly well, editing or no, 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 no? In what year was it? It was two thousand and one. Um, no, I had written one feature article, and it was published in Nature and Health, and that was commissioned and. It was after the um, release of my first book, The Serpent Rising, and they asked if I would write a feature article on cults and mind control. Mm-hmm. And I whipped this story up and I thought that was back in 1991. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that was so easy to do. I didn't know really how to do it, but I sort of flung this article together and got this big juicy check in the mail. And that sort of haunted me for a few years. I thought, oh. I'd love to get into just freelance journalism because it's much more lucrative than, you know, writing a book. 
And then 2001, I just thought, and I have written an article about this. It was published in the Australian Writers' Marketplace called um, Darts in the Dark. And I thought, I'm just going to sit down. I didn't go to any courses and I didn't read any books how to. I'm just going to sit down and start, you know, work on a feature article. And I, my daughter was up from uni at the time and said, Mum, you can't do that. You've got to go to uni and learn how to you know, write feature articles. And I said, oh, just give me a few months. Mm -hmm. And I think my very second article was a 3,000-word feature published in the Australian Financial Review, which was just incredible. Oh, absolutely. $3,000 for it. And it was in the centre spread pages. And it was on something that really pissed me off because that's most of my early articles were about things that really pissed me off and it was from a neighbor coming over i was living in an um, eco village then a community up near bundaberg and she came over and oh we were chatting about some you know whatever she came over for morning tea and said you're Children, what the hell is that about? And at that time, there was a lot of media coverage with Tony Abbott and George Powell about the evil of divorce and how much damage it's done. And I thought, this is just absolute crap. And I started re researching it and digging into it and wrote my story and then threaded. And I realised that they were actually um, misunderstanding a lot of the statistics or the research or the data they were getting from um, Christian Christian family sites in America. So I had this personal story and also challenged the misuse of statistics that were being used on divorce and put my story in there as well, like that my mother did so much harm by sticking with my father instead of leaving him. Mm. It was one of the best things for my kids. You know, I'm still on friendly terms with my husband. It was one of the best things I did was to leave my husband and move into the country. So, you know, that article was in the Financial Review and I just got on a roll for a few years and wrote about all sorts of issues and yeah. wrote about, ended up writing about the trouble with gurus yep. uh, on cults and mind control. And then um, it, this was how Sundown of the Skies was born because... I had this list on the wall of all the things I could write about. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I, it's too late to write a book about my father now because he's dead. And I had toyed with that idea for some time when he was alive. I thought, should I fly over to New Zealand and interview him? And, and, um, and I thought, he died in 1997. And I yeah. thought, it's too late now. We can't write a book about him, but maybe I can eat together one article. So I actually focused on his flight um, from England to Australia in 1930. And that was picked up by the Australian Financial Review as well, like Sundowner of the Skies, Mary Takes Flight with Her Father. Wow. And it was the feedback. And I thought that's all I can do because at that time, there were no books written on my father. There had, he kept no diaries. I had no letters. He, there were several newspaper articles that had been written about him, several chapters in books, and that was about it. And, I, and, 
a few little things I could find on um, Google searches, but hardly anything. And I thought, that's it. This is the one thing I can do. Yeah. And the feedback I got from that article was so overwhelming. I just could not believe it. People were just wanting to know more about this unsung hero of aviation and people were putting him up there. Even Dick Smith and greats like Kingsford Smith and... Um, Oh, I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to stop you for a minute there, Mary, because yeah, you're, you're answering so many questions that I, that I wanted to delve into. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. It's great. Um, but let, let's go back a little bit. So, like, yeah. how long have you been writing? Did you enjoy writing when you were younger? Like, even when you were a child, have you written all your life? Oh no, but I do have this memory, and it just goes to show the impact that teachers can have. And I think I was about 11 and I wrote a short story about a house and made that house human. I can't remember the story. And I remember my mother helping me a bit with it. And I remember going to school one morning and I saw my teacher, Mr. Johnson, recording it, talking it into this tape recorder because he loved it so much. And oh, wow. It, it always stuck with me. But um, no, I, I was a great reader. My mother read a lot. We used to get lots of books from the library. She was, it was her escape from dad too. So she used to, used to subscribe to all these magazines and um, America okay. and England, which was very strange because she only finished high school and she was the only mother of all my friends that she was sort of, a reader and really, really interested in world affairs and um, human issues. So I was very influenced by that. Yeah. And at school, at school I was a reason, you know, I did reasonably well and ended up going to university at Waikato where I started excelling and I was doing a degree and then a teacher's degree at the same time. It was huge. They don't have that anymore. It was quite a new university so we had this huge workload and we had to pick several subjects at university and I it wasn't called creative writing then I think it was English literature and I almost failed that oh. <laughs> my best subject was maths I did there were two of us only two in the class and we did pure maths and I absolutely loved it so I did my four-year university degree and then I did had one year teaching and then went back to Auckland University to start doing a master's in education. So I did have that experience of writing assignments, handwritten mostly or on a typewriter, I think, but certainly not creative writing at all. Okay. But what happened is after India, I came back and settled in Brisbane and met my husband. And I was pregnant with um, Amon, my first son. So it was 1981 and it was two months before he was born. And I thought, oh, I saw these um, TAFE courses advertised, night classes, and one was on um, car, a car mechanics course or something. So I joined that one, heavily pregnant. And then I did this. <laughs> How did you do? Oh, yeah, I was the only one there. I didn't learn anything from it. And I remember having to slide under this car with this huge belly. 
But, and then I did this short story course, and it was meant to be fiction with this quite well-known tutor called Ralph Bradley. And, for, and I don't remember enjoying it very much. And he, he gave us an assignment of a short story, and I went home, and I can't write fiction. I'm, I've tried and tried. But, so I thought I will just write something about what happened in India mm-hmm. and pretend it's fiction. And it was about this bizarre thing that happened on the train when I was trying to escape Sai Baba and get the hell out of India. And I threw my passport and money out the window of the train by accident. And I won't tell you why. You'll have to read the book. So I, had I will the definitely have to read the book. End, and the feedback I got was, I, I will never forget it. He said, this is, because I've never really had, very positive feedback on anything I'd written except that short, you know, the short story in primary school. He said, this is exceptionally well written. He didn't treat it as a fictional novel. You need to write a full-length book of your years in India, and I think this will find a ready market, blah, 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 blah. And I just remember thinking, what? <laughs> that praise just was, it just was astonishing. Did you and, sit there and think, can I actually do this? Well, no, I thought, well, uh, well my pregnancy and having a baby got in the way. I, yeah. It was daunting. I thought, oh, a writer? Do you think I could be an author, write a book? I probably wasn't, re- I wasn't ready to write about it then because I, it was very traumatic, my years in India, and I was lucky to escape with my life, to tell you the truth. I was caught up with this um, very abusive yoga teacher in um, a little ashram in the Himalayas. He's still alive today, but um, I wasn't ready to write my story, but those words of Ralph Bradley haunted me. And so over the years, I, while I was bringing up my two children, I would scribble down a little bit and put it in the bottom drawer. And it was like that story haunted me until I couldn't stand it any longer. I remember just sitting down one day and thinking, I have to write this book. And I was three and five, running around the house, and I just sat at the dining room table and virtually wrote this book in a few months, the first draft. It just came pouring out of me. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you because um... – Obviously, the book is called The Serpent Rising, A Journey of Spiritual Seduction. So I was going to ask you, you know, even though it was traumatic, what, you know, why did you want to share the experience? Oh, I had had no choice. Uh, It was compelled. Mm -hmm. And the strange thing was, I was mentioning this to someone the other day. I think what makes the book so powerful, because it was first published in 1988 and it's just had, you know, enduring appeal, is that when I started writing, I was actually ambivalent about my experiences in India. I thought, oh, I've missed out and it was my bad karma that all those things happened to me and so much of it was just magical and wonderful and maybe I should take my kids back to India for a year. But as I was writing the book, it, it was like, oh, my God, it was it was very confronting, especially when I came to write 
and the scene about the coerced abortion I had when I was six months pregnant. I didn't know I was six months till afterwards. Oh, wow. I thought, oh, my God, this is just what I've been through is horrendous. It was like it just, I'm just trying to think of the words to explain it. It sort of woke me up. Writing the book woke me up and thought, oh, my God. And then I thought, but no one's written about this. So it was quite confusing. When the book was first released, there was quite a bit of publicity. I was on Ray Martin's Midday Show. Uh, there were articles and reviews. Even though it was a self-published book, there were articles in Woman's Day. And, there, and it was a bit unnerving because I really hadn't begun getting therapy or seeing a psychologist to sort of unravel some of that trauma that I yeah. had. So all that media attention must have been very overwhelming when you, it was, you were just I trying to... I couldn't cope with it. I yeah. didn't cope with it at all. And then we moved to Mullaney, which was the last place in Australia I should have moved to at that time because there were so many people there into religious groups. And I, there was quite a lot of negative feedback from people, a community leader, for instance, who said... Oh, why has Mary written this book? So many people have been to India and had fantastic time. And I, a part of me felt ashamed for writing it. And I ended up mulching and burning a lot of copies and just wishing I'd never written it. And then it was only a few years after that that all these stories started being... Um, and there were a few other books written about people in cults. So it, it clearly was written before its time. So in 2003, after I'd become a freelance writer and had that article published in the Australian Financial Review, I decided to, you know, reprint it and do a new edition. And <laughs> it's just never died. It just... And when Sundown of the Sky um, was published, in two, and two years ago, I tried to get uh, ABC Conversations to interview me about it, but all they wanted to do was interview me about the Serpent Rising. Wow. So, yeah, so that it's really had a profound impact, hasn't it, that first book that you wrote? It's amazing. It's a huge impact. And when it first came out, even though I was quite hesitant and it was overwhelming, I've got a folder because it was pre-internet days, uh, 1988 it was published, I've got a folder of letters from people who wrote to me sharing their stories. Um, and then when the, the second edition was published in 2003, I've just had nonstop emails from people, from psychologists wow. to work with cult victims. I, had, I went to America and talked at a cult conference. And um, I didn't really get into the um, anti-cult movement too much because I found them too black and white and I think there's much more nuance needed when you're talking about these groups because it is because one of the groups I got involved with right at the end was the Rajneesh group the Bhagawan Rajneesh and Puna who ended up going over to America and the group did morph into a cult but when I was there in Pune it I wasn't damaged at all it was a fantastic time for me it was like my way out of that whole, you know, um, mind control and um, mm. religion. So I think you've got to be very wary. But, um, yeah, so 
it has had an, you know, someone ordered the book today. There's someone gave, sent me a message on Twitter. Oh, I'd love to read your book. So it's another author. So it just yeah. trickles out all the time. And the film rights were purchased, actually. It was right. Oh, at, okay. I think maybe Paul Keating for it not being turned into the series because they did do the film treatment and they could not get the funds for it. It was um, the year 2000. Oh, well, no, wow. It was 1990 during the recession. That's right. And I was flying over to Perth and there were these film treatments done, but nothing came of it. Because a lot of people have said, oh, that would make such a good movie. Mm. I'm definitely going to have to read it now because I understand the book actually won, is it the High Country Indie Award in 2021? Oh, well, that was just incredible. <laughs> I couldn't believe is that it. Is right? that Yeah. Was that, was that the yes. right year? Yeah. Yes. So that was last year. Yeah. The High Country Indie Award is um, it's the second year running and it was up against books like Too Much Lip, Rural Dreams by Marg Hickey, who I, which I absolutely loved, um, Hearing Maud by Jessica White. And when, Mar when Michael Birds rang me, and what they did is each month um, this group, it's like a, re a book club, but the book club is actually made up of authors and um, readers. Many of them have had university training. It's based in Glen Innes. And they pick a book a month and they had actually chosen my book. And when Mike Birds rang me to say that it had won an award, I just burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. And I wow. said, that book was self-published. It's never been edited properly. <laughs> A typo in the first sentence, you look carefully. And yeah, I went down to Glen Innes to the High Country um, Writers Festival to accept the award. And it was like, I, I still don't understand why this book was chosen. And they said, Oh, that main character, which is of course me, she just grabbed us <laughs> right from the beginning. And I think Mike Bird said he now works as a guardian for a uh, journalist for The Guardian. Yep. And it's got one of the best endings of any book that I've ever read. Wow, but, that's a huge yeah, statement, it is. isn't it? Look, look, congratulations, like winning that award. That's amazing. Yeah, fantastic. It was a real thrill. Yeah, good on you. So let's let's move on to Sundowner of the Skies. So the aviation feats that your father actually achieved were nothing short of amazing, really, yet his achievements have been relatively unknown or acknowledged. And like you yourself weren't aware of the magnitude of what, he, what he'd actually achieved until you wrote your article back in 2005. And his achievements are up there, as you were saying, with the likes of Charles Kingsford Smith, yet many people, myself included, had never heard of your father before I read your book. Um, I think they probably he have heard of him more in New Zealand, and I'll get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But the, the book has had the book had amazing publicity in um, Australia too, though, and fantastic reviews. Um, I, I think you're right. It was just me uh, me digging into that story of his flight and re realizing the significance of it. And I think we do lose many of these stories because no, you know, nobody shows any interest in them. Mm. And if I hadn't have dug into that, um, his, especially that flight, and realised, oh my, because my mother had always downplayed it. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book. That's interesting, isn't it? Why do you think yeah, that she is? Said, you know, well, she, well, she was still alive when I was writing it. I mean, she changed her mind. 
she just because of her issues with dad and she said he's always big noting himself and you know he was only the fourth to fly from England to Australia but you know the fourth was incredible because he actually was a novice aviator Kingsford Smith and Bert Hinkler had thousands of hours of flying experience. That's right. Father had 38, and nobody knew about him. You know, he was just, there was no publicity and no one, you know, supporting his flight in any way. And he just did it not to break a record, but just to get enough hours for his commercial license. So back in the 1930s, when I began researching my book, and thankfully, you know, we had the internet, so I could go on to Trove and Papers Past and access all the articles that had been written, there are tens of thousands of articles on Oscar Garden. And he was famous in 1930. Wow. It's like he had this 15-year flying career and then disappeared for various reasons, which I go into in the book. And what is so significant is that almost all those early aviators died in crashes. Very quick, you know, there was Kingsford Smith died, Bert Hinkler, Amy Johnson. Jack survived and went on to a career in commercial aviation and ended up becoming head of Tasman Empire Airways, flying the flying boats. And Tasman Empire Airways became Air New Zealand. So... During the 1930s and when he was head chief pilot and operations manager of Tasman Empire Airways, he actually was famous. And it was then he left suddenly and just turned his back on the world of aviation and disappeared. And that's happened to other famous people too. Like it happened to Gene Batten, who is New Zealand's most famous aviatrix, as you call it. She disappeared and, you know, um, and it, it, it came to Ian Mackesy becoming interested in her story. They didn't even know where she had died. So it's just a matter of um, tracking down some of these stories. But my, famous, my father is, was very bitter and resentful at, at, at the end of his life in those last 10 years he was very bitter that he had been forgotten. He had a real chip on his shoulder. Mm. And it would have been very resentful that Gene Batten had these huge murals and displays at Auckland Airport. And it's actually named after her, Gene Batten. Turner. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. The amazing, yeah, the amazing thing that happened about my book is that And the daughter, I knew her. She was 15 years older than me. She used to babysit me. The daughter of one of my mother's closest friends got the book and gave it to a very well-known Maori artist called Graham Hootie. And Graham Hootie's world-renowned, but he's a celebrity in New Zealand. He does these huge, incredible murals with spray paints. And she gave a copy of my book to Graham, they call him Mr. G, and said, you need to do something on Oscar Garden. Well, look, I was about to go to New Zealand to launch my book there, like within six weeks. Graham read the book and said, oh, my goodness, I've been given this commission to do a mural for Tauranga Airport, which Tauranga was where I grew up, 
They rushed it through council, got the approval, and by the time I arrived in Tauranga to launch my book at the Classic Flyers Aviation Museum, the mural was up. There was an unveiling at Tauranga Airport. There was uh, Mr G and his, um, her, his parents and a, a group of Maoris who did the Maori blessing. So if anyone flies into Tauranga, which is one of the fourth biggest cities in New Zealand now, mm-hmm. and if they sit in the visitor's lounge, the departure lounge, there is this huge portrait of Oscar Garden. Yep. And underneath that portrait is a copy of my book and this huge, large information sheet that Tauranga Council got me to write. So it's this beautiful thing in a glass box. So I keep getting photos of people who, you know, who've flown into Tauranga and they take a photo. Yeah, and then they send it to you. Yeah, that's lovely. It's fabulous, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, I've I've been to Tauranga a few times, but it's always on a cruise ship. I've never actually gone to the airport. It's always been on a cruise, so I'm going to have to fly there and check it out, I think. The airport is very close. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so a kilometre from where the, where the cruise line is. Um, yeah. So you just need to jump in a taxi and go to Taranga Airport. There you go. I'll have to do that next time I do a New Zealand cruise. I'm hoping to do one next year, actually. So. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'll have to do that. But what I want to know, Mary, is how did you approach the, like, amounts of me- amount um, of research that you had to do like where did you start was um, it just a huge amount of research you had to do for the well I was actually lucky that um, no that came afterwards I just it was like the same approach that I use for writing feature articles okay I just amount a huge mountain <laughs> a mountain of material and in the early days, it was a matter, I was lucky enough to get a research grant. So I flew over to the South Island the year that Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister because I remember being at Invercargill when I heard that news. That was 2007. Remember Kevin 07? That's oh, yes, what I yes. remember. So I was, luckily I started this when I did because I went over to New Zealand, I went and visited aviation museums I managed to track down some people who knew dad or had been on joy rides with him I contacted someone who'd been on Stewart Island when dad made the very first landing on Stewart Island and this person was a schoolboy and wow. the had the day off school so I've written about that the first landing on Stewart Island that's been published in um, quite a few magazines So after I wrote that first article, I just want to go back a little bit, I wrote scores of articles because I began digging up these adventures my father had and I was able to get them published in America, South Africa, England, New Zealand, Australia. Aviation magazines in particular just snapped them up. New Zealand Geographic, New Zealand Memories, all all these places just and newspapers in New Zealand they could not get enough of Oscar Garden because he was such a odd, very odd, very eccentric, strange person. And people just wanted to know more. And when these articles came out, I started getting letters from people like, I went for a joyride with your father. Here's some photos. Here. So people kept sending me things. So Wow. 
and even my family members, they anyone who had anything on my father or and even even in Scotland, people started sending things because I made out, I didn't really believe I was going to write a book, but I told people I was. I didn't I honestly didn't believe I could do it. I think it's just too much. Yep. I wasn't qualified as a historian. Um, I did have good research skills, though. That was honed by doing um, freelance journalism. So I just had this huge amount of material and I began going, the biggest breakthrough was going to archives. So the Orkney, my father was born in the far north of Scotland. Mm -hmm. So Scottish archives was an absolute gold mine and so were the Orkney archives. Because we we were just told so many lies growing up. And in the Scottish archives, I uncovered this massive amount of material about my grandparents' separation and to get custody. And um, um, what do you call it? They call it something different, the alimony for, for children. And it's massive, pages and pages, like 50 pages of all the stuff. Because this is 1908, my grandmother took the children and ran away from the husband and then went back. There's a whole chapter in the book on what happened to my father and then how they ended up in New Zealand. So the archives were just incredible. I mean, you have to pay for a lot of it. Mm. I think I would have spent four years solidly collecting material. I interviewed my mother. I went over to Auckland and interviewed some of the pilots of the flying boats that Dad trained. I interviewed my cousins. I never thought of interviewing my sister and brother because well, I did ask for my brother, but he'd never, he, didn't, he didn't ever get round to um, replying or giving his story. But okay. I interviewed my cousins. I interviewed my half-sister who used to come and stay with us on holidays. And she's married to a very famous New Zealand author called Morris G, who were a tremendous support when I was writing both books. So that five years was just collecting material. And it was obvious that, you know, the book formed naturally, like sequentially, like childhood or the Scottish background. I had this rough outline. I had most of the material and I just thought, this is too hard. This is too boring. I can't do it. I just thought I gave up and put it aside for a few years. I went back to university to do an editing course and unfortunately got a high distinction, which really <laughs> my ego. Oh, I lecture of Jane Fines Clinton, who's often on the drum, said, you should do a master's. And I thought, no way. And I ended up doing another course, another high distinction. I got high distinctions all the way through except for creative writing. I only got a distinction for that, and I absolutely hated that course. I'll listen to you, only a distinction. (laughs) That's still pretty amazing. (laughs) My dog is barking. Oh, that's okay. We're we're lucky that mine hasn't barked yet, so don't worry. No problem. I've just been telling you Ivy doesn't bark. Come here, Ivy. And I ended up um, doing a postgraduate diploma and I, someone said, you need to do your master's or a PhD. They ended up upgrading it to a PhD 
And I thought, oh, I'm going to apply for a scholarship. And my supervisor said, you won't get that. There's no way you haven't done, you haven't done a thesis before. I got that scholarship, $60,000. Oh, well done. So I ended up doing my... Me. You know, the research skills as well. And I think when I, when I, look, a lot of it was a waste of time. It was so boring and it was so stressful. But I ended up doing the PhD within three years. And I thought if I can write an 80,000 word thesis, I damn well going to finish my book on my father. Because that, like the serpent rising, that story just haunted me. And I kept getting emails from people who had read that original article in 2005, published in the Australian Financial Review. And I'd get emails from these people saying, I went into Dimmicks and asked for your book, but it, <laughs> you haven't finished your book, or are you nearing completion? And this is years after that article. Like, that was just incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. Are you still writing the book? And you know, I'm wanting a copy. And I felt this obligation. Yep. I, I felt an obligation that this story, it's almost like with the, all the writing I do, it's like shining a light on darkness or there's been injustice. And I thought there was injustice around my father. I thought even though he was a cruel and harsh, authoritarian father who caused a lot of damage mm. his story deserves to be told and he's been overlooked in history so and the big breakthrough when I came back to writing my book I read Tim Elliott's memoir Farewell to the Father which is an absolute fabulous book and I realized I'm going to do that I'm going to put and he talks a lot about his father's mental illness and the family's dysfunction. That's what my book needs. It needs my personal story threaded throughout. Yeah, yeah. Changed it. So, you know, my, my voice is now right there, even though I wasn't there in North Scotland. An editor suggested to me, you can still be there and give your opinion, even though you weren't there. And you can still reflect on that Oscar Garden when he was 20 and his interaction and how you can't recognise that person. So that completely changed the whole book and, and lifted it. Yeah, just completely changed it. And then I was just on a roll. I thought it, re it came together really easily. Mum had died by then, unfortunately, but I had her story in it. My aunts, you know, I had all these rich um, material and it just fell together. So it was just incredible. Yeah, because, I mean, Oscar Garden, the aviator, was very different to Oscar Garden, the father. So, like, while writing the book, you discovered some things about your father that made you angry. Are you happy to talk about that? Oh, not only um, No, I was angry before I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why it was so hard for me to write it. Because when I went on that research tour, I visited my half-sister in Nelson and she, she used to be a librarian at Turnbull and I found this box of letters Dad had written to them and I was enraged and Mum was alive. Then we were both furious. 
because dad was such a bastard he was such a miser mm. he never gave me a penny during my life he wouldn't even give housekeeping money to my mother for food and clothes he insisted that she get that from her father and he was a compulsive gambler and I found the secret cache of letters written to Margareta. He never wrote a letter to me, just a scribble on the bottom of mum's letters. Whole letters saying, don't tell Hal, Helen was my mother, or, or Mary or Anna, and sending them money. And I wow. thought, one of the reasons I thought, oh, you bastard, I'm not going to write your book. So, you know, I, I was angry before I wrote the book, but doing the research my anger lessened for both mum and myself because we began to understand how traumatised he'd been as a child and what had happened to him. Mm. I was seeing mum every day saying, oh, mum, look what I found out. And it was hugely healing to get that. It was more than what any therapy could have done. Yeah. So I imagine it was quite therapeutic for both you and your mum. Absolutely, absolutely, really it was. And I began to realise, okay, he was a, almost... And then I had been reading other biographies of aviators as well, and they were all as flawed as Oscar Garden, Kingsford Smith is, Jean Batten. They were all flawed heroes. That does not detract from their contribution. And I thought he, really, he deserves to be acknowledged and mm. he deserves to be up there with the great. But um, he said, and I think that's what... that. You know, makes the book interesting too. That yeah, I agree definitely. and you know, because there are two chapters on my home life and my childhood, I had to cut one chapter out and reduce it a bit. But I fought back with the editor of the publisher, and I thought it was really important to write about our very because it wasn't just that. Thankfully, he wasn't an alcoholic like my grandfather, but I thought you know he was a very harsh cold authoritarian man working from home because he became a tomato grower mm-hmm. so we had an escape from him i thought it was really important to put that in and um the book was shortlisted for the new south wales premier's history award and the judges focused on the intergenerational trauma because that is a thread of the book as well yeah that- wow that's amazing because, like how did you deal with just with the emotions, Mary, like when you were writing the book, because it would have just brought, brought up so much. How did you deal with that oh, when you were going through the process of writing the book? It didn't. No, no, not at all. No, it was, um, you know, I'd done therapy by then and I'd bashed my father up in therapy rooms. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd work through all those, yeah, all those emotions. Yeah. I've done a lot of therapy and working through even in India when I was with Raj Nish I'd done a lot of therapy on him it was just no it was exciting writing most of the book to tell you the truth okay especially the last stages and I think what you've got to also realize there are these threads coming through the intergenerational trauma of mental illness alcoholism violence my grandfather was violent to my grandmother but the other amazing thread which some people pick up on there was all this good luck and good fortune and I was mentioning that to someone the other day like I've had repeated trauma in my life from my childhood India domestic violence in Mulaney with 
several men I got involved with. But on top of all of that, there's this good fortune. And, you know, my father was so lucky to have survived. And he called his plane Kia Ora, which traditionally is Maori for good luck. He had good luck. He had good health. They, he, they, they had longevity in the family. I've got good health. A lot of luck with business acumen that comes through from my great-grandfather in Orkney. Yep. You know, lots of good luck that coming through as well. Imagine if I didn't have that. You know, we're reasonably intelligent, pretty good-looking. My father was really good-looking. Yeah, he was a good-looking man. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But you need to focus on that as well and the resilience, you know, especially for me, not for my father so much because he did not have the tools to heal what had happened to him. He was in complete denial. I mean, he thought he was a fantastic father and that he was going to go to heaven. That's what he told my mother a few days before he died. He had no insight whatsoever, but that generation did not have the tools to heal their trauma. So, you know, yeah. I think the book, I felt a lot of compassion for him. Yeah, I, I bet you did. It would have been a lot of conflicting emotions. Yes, yes. And I felt proud. I just thought, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I don't know what, what he would have felt like. Yeah, yeah, sorry, your, your audio just froze for a minute there. Sorry, I was just going to say, what do you think your dad would think of the book? Uh, where he is now, if he is there, I think he'd be really proud, but he, he would have wanted a hagiography. He would not have wanted any criticism of his, him, you know, the human aspect at all. He would have wanted just the aviation feats and, okay. um, and achievements. And a book like that would not have sold. No one would have been interested in it. Well, a few aviation diehards may have, but yeah. uh, it wouldn't have had the appeal and the interest. It would have been boring. <laughs> What for you, what was the most challenging thing that you faced while writing the book? Uh, finding a publisher. Okay, yeah. Uh, so so was, tell me about your journey um, to public. It's um, New Holland Publishers, isn't it, that yes. you're published with? Yeah, so tell me about the journey to publication well, I was with them. Lucky when I was doing my PhD because I was looking at journalist blogs and then I ended up looking at um, journalists' use of Twitter. And I became friends with Trent Dalton before anyone knew him. <laughs> I became one of his first, he was one of my first Twitter friends. Oh, that's and amazing. That's pretty I, cool. I know, and I'd started reading his articles um, when I was doing my journalism degree, PhD, and thought, oh, he's amazing. He was still writing for the Courier Mail. And my very first tweet to Trent was, oh, my God, I found you. I love your work. You need to write a book. And you went, oh, that's an idea. <laughs> and look where he is now. That's amazing. I know. Amazing. So I met Trent and I sent Trent my manuscript of my book because we were friends on Twitter. I sent him um, a direct message. Yep. And um, I got the endorsement from him. But before I got the endorsement from him, I was also Twitter friends with Catherine Milne. Harper Collins. And it's very, very hard to get um, a direct access to a publisher unless you have a literary agent. And I 
sent a message to Catherine on Twitter and said, oh, I think I gave her a little, mentioned a little bit about Trent's feedback. Would you like to look at my manuscript? And she said, sure thing, send it to me. So I, that she was the very first publisher I sent it to. And the feedback I got from her was the worst reject, the best rejection I've ever had in my life because she said, oh, Mary, I'm so torn. Um, she really wanted to publish the book but couldn't get it past the sale. No. And at that time, the title was just Sundown of the Skies. There wasn't, wasn't the subtitle, The mm -hmm. Story of Oscar Garden, The Forgotten and then she sent it over to New Zealand to HarperCollins over there. And Alex Headley wrote me this most beautiful rejection email as well, saying, oh, he loved the fact of, especially the last two chapters, sharing my own personal struggle. And he said, unfortunately, biographies of um, unknown people just, you know, they don't, they don't, there's not the market for them. Okay. And I thought, that's the whole point of the book. So I actually put that subtitle in The Forgotten Aviator just to have yeah, a little. Yeah, because that's, that's ironic, isn't it? Like that's the whole point. Yeah, of, yeah that's why he wanted to write it, to tell his story. That, that gave me a huge boost because I really had no idea how good the book was. I'd had it edited by a local editor at Mullaney. So I sent it off here, there and everywhere and I kept getting, and I stupidly cut and pasted Catherine Milne's feedback, which was a really stupid thing to have done because they just repeated what Catherine said. <laughs> finally, I went to a manuscript assessor in Lismore and he said, oh, you don't need an assessment on this if you've had that sort of feedback from Catherine Milne. And he said, do you have a synopsis? Do you have endorsements? And I thought, no. Do you have a marketing proposal, whatever? And I thought, what is that? And so I went off and got those fantastic endorsements from um, Dick Smith and uh, um, Trent Dalton, which ended up on the blurb on the cover. Yes, and indeed. Ended up um, getting it edited again and sent it off and with a month got two acceptances. So I had New Holland and I had Wakefield Press who really wanted it. And I went with New Holland because they have an office in Auckland and I okay. realised the book would be very popular in New Zealand as well, which it has been. I think it's, it's sold as many copies in New Zealand as it has in Australia, which is quite incredible. Yeah, congratulations. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, we, let's talk about the book that your sister wrote, shall we? <laughs> we're, we're going to go there. So your sister All wrote... Right. A story. So I'll let you, yeah, I'll let you tell the listeners about that. It's definitely um, interesting. So off yeah, you go. Well, it's actually another trauma to add to my pile, which is something a historian who'd read my book said. Your sister's book is another trauma of the intergenerational trauma. Look, I sent my manuscript to everyone in the family. The authors don't need to, but I did. No, I sent it to my brother, my brother, my like that. We don't agree with how you've portrayed him. And it wasn't just my story in my book on my father. I've got, you know, a lot of mum's quotes and my aunt and my half-sister. 
And the only objection from my brother and my sister was to leave out a final chapter, which was left out, and it was on some harrowing events after Dad died. And the editor at New Holland wanted that taken off and said it really is another a different book going in another direction. So we cut that out, and my brother was absolutely thrilled when my book came out, said he was so proud of me. And blow me down, I've had a very fractured, uh, mostly estranged relationship with my sister Mm -hmm. since 1980. And there are mental health issues which I can't go into. And Mm -hmm. there's been bullying and there's been a huge, there's a lot of resentment of me being the oldest sister. And I've I've had to be very wary of my interactions with her over the years even though I did help her once when she was in crisis and I had to fly over to New Zealand and do an intervention but I've I've, I've felt compassion for her like my father but really have for my own mental health and even physical safety I've had to be very careful oh okay sister it was just after I'd found out that I was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's History Award I got an email from a cousin and everyone was behind me with this book. I got wonderful emails of gratitude, thank you. My cousin said, Mary, I thought you'd be interested in this. And I clicked on the link and it was an excerpt from this book by Anna Maria Garden to be released the next day. And I I just about had a heart attack. I just mm. It would have been such a huge shock. It, it was it was just horrendous, and I was just about to head off down to Glen Innes to the Writers' Festival, and it was traumatic, and I couldn't get my head around it, and I still can't get my head around it today. I've written about it in um, the newsroom called Why My Sister's Books Are Stabbed in the Back. Um, she And I wasn't talking to my sister at the time. I still have a little bit of contact with her. But my brother said, oh, she didn't like all the family stuff in your book, and um, she didn't like that. She she just wanted to focus on the aviation. Uh, I think my publisher in New Zealand got a copy of it. I was too scared to even read a copy for six months. And he said, Mary, you've got nothing to worry about. It's not selling very well and it's not very well written. And when I finally got a copy of the book, January last year, I was absolutely fuming. I thought, she has literally... I was enraged because when I'd finished writing, I gave my whole collection to the Motat Museum in Auckland, including Dad's logbooks. Everything I'd used, boxes and boxes, went over to the museum. There's now an Oscar Garden collection. Oh, wow. As soon as my book was released, she went in and and used all my resources and sources. And didn't interview anyone and, and whipped up. My book would have taken 10 years. In nine months, she whipped up this book, a hagiography, and got itself published through a high-end publisher, Mary Egan Publishing. And when I got a copy of it, I was fuming. I thought all these treasures I'd uncovered and these fantastic anecdotes, it is literally piggybacking my book. The same photographs, the same anecdotes, I thought the writing's really weird. I didn't look at it too closely, but I did go to a I did send it both copies of the book to a lawyer in Sydney. 
who said there was a case, there was a possible case for copyright infringement. But I just put it aside. I just was just so distressed by the whole thing. And then it was only last August last year that I had been asked to write an article for um, an aviation magazine in New Zealand, and it was to do with Dad's flight over Australia. And I thought, I'll just see if Anna's got any more information on Broken Hill. And I went and looked at her reference and tracked it down and went to the source. And I thought, what the hell? She has copied and pasted 1,000 words plus from this article in the Sydney Morning Herald 1930. And oh, I said, goodness oh, me. Because I, I, when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, there's the odd sentence, it seems, that my sister's copied from me. And there is a possible copyright infringement, but not huge-scale plagiarism. But then I looked at it and saw... And then I, I just went down this, I compiled this huge spreadsheet, thousands and thousands and thousands of words copied and pasted from newspaper articles and several aviation books that I used as well that had chapters of Dad. No attribution. And she sometimes just changed Oscar Garden to Dad. And that I is thought, just a, a, unbelievable. I wrote to Anna and Robert and said, um, you've got to withdraw this book. You need a public apology. You need to, you know, scrap it. And um, Anna said uh, her feedback was, oh, look. I was so distressed of the fact that my sister's book was all around New Zealand, sitting next to mine in bookshops and museums and libraries. So I went to a lawyer, a specialist in um, Auckland. And the short story is, we, we, he could only act on altered copyright infringement because he felt we had a strong case, not plagiarism because she wasn't plagiarising me, even though I did track down the son of one of the authors and he was furious. And um, we ended up um, getting an agreement from the publisher to not publish any more copies of the book. And, uh, and then Anna, through her lawyer, agreed to remove all copies of the book from libraries and museums. So huge, huge relief. <laughs> oh. No explanation, no apology, no remorse. And... Uh, it's actually, I've always been on friendly terms with my brother, but it yep. is, it, I'm having nothing more to do with him now. It was just a huge betrayal by him because he was the only one who knew Anna was writing this book. Oh, so, yeah, you'd feel really betrayed. That's awful. Betrayed. But then on the other hand, I've got every other garden and member of our family just came out and just gave me so much support that, yeah, I just I still can't get my head around it, and I actually have no explanation for why she plagiarised it, and I really don't have any clear explanation for why she did it. Yeah, it, well, it, well, I guess she's never really given you an explanation, has she? Well, well, none of it made sense. She just she wanted her version, and I know from her letters to Mum, I always knew that we were on the same page together about Dad. I've got her letters to mum talking about how much damage dad did and, and how horrendous it was for us as children. 
And in this book, there's very little written on our childhood, but she's making out that we had this wonderful childhood, which is absolute, complete crap. And yeah, <laughs> that, that would make you feel angry. You'd feel really betrayed by your sibling. You're thinking, oh, yeah. oh, did, did you yeah. live the same experience as me? What's going on here? You know, yeah, yeah, you'd feel yeah, very yeah. hurt. Uh, really hurt, but um, I just thought, just bizarre, bizarre. I just thought, and it's also odd because it wasn't just my father having this violent streak. He was, I grew up feeling so ashamed of him. He was so odd and eccentric. And I thought, oh, this is just another example. Mum would be, if mum had been alive, it wouldn't have surprised her. She would have thought, oh, those gardens are all mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, love her. Yeah, it, it sounds like he was definitely. And it wouldn't have surprised. Go on. Yeah, he was de definitely a complex, interesting character, your dad, wasn't he? <laughs> it, <laughs> is that way of putting it? My sister's taken him, taken, you know, leaf out of her his book, I think. <laughs> so much like my father in many ways. And it's really sad that she, like dad, because all you really want is a close, loving relationship with your siblings. Yeah. And she really has not had the tools or whatever to heal some of that trauma. Um, and she's had huge mental health issues, but that's no excuse. And she's a bully. Like, it was almost like this is just, an, uh, you know, an, an extension of her abuse. And that's yeah. a whole other story that is not being talked about. Is sibling mm -hmm. abuse, which comes from a dysfunctional family, and I've had so many people want me to write a book on sibling abuse, but I won't. I, I, my, my, I may mention it in the book that I'm working on, but it's like this is we talk so much about family violence, elder abuse, sibling abuse is the most common cause of family violence, and we are not talking about it. And we're talking about sexual abuse, emotional abuse. My sister has physically abused me several times and I've ended up in hospital. Oh, wow. I've heard, I've heard horrendous stories from people as soon as we talk about this. So it's yeah, really you're right. You don't hear about that. You know, you hear about violence between partners, um, yeah, sexual violence, as you said, but not between siblings. That's something that's, yeah, not spoken about at all. It's interesting. No, so the symptom of a very dis dysfunctional family. Yeah, because you've just... That's actually a good segue into what I was going to ask you because what are you working on at the moment? I was going to ask you if you're working on anything new. Oh, well, I'm down a rabbit, I'm down a rabbit hole today because of the huge um, story in The Guardian and other places in the last few days about Robert Hughes's plagiarism of his book that had been shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. And I thought, I'm going to write a feature article on plagiarism. I might mention my sister's story. I just find it fascinating, especially the excuses they give. So that's one little thing that's on the boiler. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking because what appealed to people about both my books was this, you know, the thread of intergenerational trauma. And I thought I touched upon it in the sundown of the skies. I think I want to go more deep, deeper into that and go it but make it a memoir and go and I'll I will hark back to some of the things that happened with my grandparents and great grandparents. Okay. My life and 
and look at you know my children what i've been through and um just a memoir of family violence but i also want to have this strong thread and i don't think i emphasized it enough in sundown of this huge thread of resilience good fortune i've had so much good fortune in my life good luck and because I read a lot of memoirs of people who've been through so much trauma and they end up with alcohol addiction and drug addiction. And I'm just so lucky I didn't have that. I didn't go down that pathway that, you know. Yeah, you are very lucky. You're very blessed yeah. in a lot of ways, which is yeah, great. That's, I thought that'd be a fantastic book, not all gloom and blue, gloom, blue, doom, <laughs> gloom and doom. And, yeah, so that's the story. That's the book I'm tinkering with. Okay. And I do want to write this article about plagiarism. It fascinates me the how you stumble upon it by accident, even though the red flags are there. If people were very careful readers, they would have seen, and this is what happened with uh, the author of The Whale Rider in New Zealand. This astute reviewer read one passage and thought, that's sort of out of sync. That's just a completely different way of writing. And if I'd read carefully that very first extract that was published in the stuff, I would have thought that's very odd. That's just sitting there and I didn't realise, I found out later, she had plucked that from that 1930 article. So it was a very strangely written. So for very careful readers, you'd stumble over plagiarism. And I think a lot of it goes unnoticed. Wow. I'm fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by the weird excuses people give because my, my sister gave me no explanation and her very last words to me when I was pressuring her to get the book, her books removed from Motat, and she ended up writing to the museum director. She said, that's it then. <laughs> that was her last words to me. Oh. <laughs> no apology, no remorse. Uh, very strange. So human beings are very complex and very strange. Yes, absolutely. And like, I myself have a—I have one sibling, one sister, and I don't get along with her and I cut her out of my life years ago because she's toxic. So all oh. families do have their issues. So, yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's very that's hard. Fascinating. Oh, that's yeah, reassuring to hear. It's more common. I, I hear a lot about um, estranged siblings and it's actually – there's a lot of um, – uh, stigma about that but mm. in fact it can be the healthiest thing to my yeah. mother always said Mary you don't have to be friends with your family my That's mother right. old thing even though she had her own issues but <laughs> you don't have to be friends with your family thank god you moved to Queensland she used to say thank have, god you, have you seen that welcome mat you can get for your door that says what does it say um friends always welcome family by appointment only I think I need one of those <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> now, here's, here's a question for you, Mary. What does literary success look like to you? So for me, it's making people laugh with my books. What does it look like for you? Oh, for my story, I, I think the power of a memoir is that it makes people feel less alone. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, has been the feedback of I got feedback from Sunday. I've had hundreds and hundreds of emails talking about the dysfunctional families, not about the aviation. And it's like, oh, I had a father like yours or I went to India. Is that, if, to me, literary success is that it strikes a chord with readers. Yeah. 
and people yeah. don't and people share their own stories and it makes them feel less alone. I think memoirs are hugely powerful. I love the genre. Yeah. And look, Mary, I took your book away with me when I went to Queensland in March and that's when I read your book. And I'm, I'm not someone who normally picks up a memoir and I really enjoyed it. So, like, congratulations. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. You've done really well. Thank you so much. Yeah, fantastic and fabulous questions. Now, where can people find you online, Mary? Where are you on social media? I'm on Twitter at Mary Garden. I'm on Instagram. Facebook, Google me, you'll find me. <laughs> you've, have you got an author website? Yes, I've got a web, marygarden.com.au. There's a whole page there yep, on yeah. my sister's book. And there's a whole page there on Sundowner, another one for my feature articles. So, yeah, go to my web page. And I'm sure uh, if we searched you on YouTube, will we find you on the Ray Martin Midday Show? I need no. to go back and have a look for that. Oh, I wonder. Oh, that was excruciating. <laughs> I was so, oh, I, used, I had a huge problem public speaking until I went to Toastmasters and I flew down to Sydney and I was frozen in fright during that interview. Was Were you? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he was so ignorant, he asked me stupid questions. It was an awful experience. Oh, was it really? Oh, I, Wow. I had, I had so much, I had people contacting me after that. I was on a bus with you in India. <laughs> and so it was hilarious, yeah. It had, it, a lot of people saw that Ray Martin show. <laughs> I had a bright, bright pink dress on and I looked like I was caught in the spotlight of a car. <laughs> you, look like, you look like a deer in the headlights. Oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> and now I love it. I love it. Oh, no, good on you. So... Mary, any final words? So we have had some technical difficulties with your audio, so I'm not sure what's happening there, but hopefully it'll be okay. Have you got any final words or anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Um, oh, well, you've got me stumped there. Anything at all? <laughs> any advice for someone wanting to write a book or advice? Oh, for, for someone authors? to write a book? Uh, hmm. Just just if you've got someone in your family, if you, no, just just record people's stories like get them down before it's too late like I almost missed out on my father's story and if you've got your own story just get it down don't worry about editing just do what I do just do a brain dump just get a mountain of words and sometimes the muse will come and sit on your shoulder and you'll be really inspired I think the last sentence in my book a lot of people comment about the last sentence in my book I got woken up at one o'clock in the morning with that sentence and it's word for word. But if you really have got a story, just write it down. I have no advice for fiction writers, though. I've tried writing fiction. I just can't do it. I just, you know, I love true stories. And just read, read a lot. Oh, I'd have to agree with the reading. Yeah, absolutely. Pick up a book and read it 100%. Yeah. Yes. So, look, Mary, I really enjoyed your book. I'm definitely going to have to read your first book now because it sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to go back and read that. Thank you. Thanks for joining um, to me today on the podcast and sharing your writing journey. Um, we did have a lot of technical issues, so fingers crossed that this recording is okay. <laughs> but you've oh. shared, um, you know, a story, you know, warts and all. Good luck with your future um, projects. Yep. Thank you so much for having me on.
Oh, it was a pleasure. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And remember, when we write, we can't go wrong. And until next time, bye for now.